1 Corinthians chapter 15. And just before we start, just a quick word. I want to continue to pray for our country during this time of turmoil. And uh, a lot of people are unfortunately in harm's way due to decisions that have been made by our government and its leaders. And Lord, we really want to ask the Lord to give them wisdom beyond their own ability to do what is needed to get these folks home and out of harm's way. And also for those who've helped us these many years as they've spent time over in uh, Afghanistan. But today we want to turn our hearts to God's word this morning. And we're talking about, just to remind you, the results of his resurrection, the results of his resurrection, the reality of the resurrection. And it's uh, important that when we come to this verse this morning, we understand that this is a very difficult passage. Um, I have a Bible program named Logos, and if you look up all these commentaries and what everybody says, I mean, there's myriads and myriads and myriads of opinion on what this means concerning baptism for the dead. And so this morning, we're going to try to give you a little insight into this, because a lot of people have it wrong, and we pray that the Lord would lead us to the truth in his word. But one cannot be a a believer really without understanding the resurrection of Christ because we're told in Romans 10 that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and uh, confess him as Lord, you will be saved. And so we've been looking at this and so far the results of his resurrection, just way of review real quick, in verses uh, 20 to 34 is where we're spending this time. Um, we see the classification of the resurrections. Remember, we talked about these before, that there's um, the first fruit, which is Christ. He is the first resurrection. Within that first resurrection, there's also the believer's resurrection, which comes at various times throughout the end times. And then you also have a third uh, classification of resurrection, and that is the resurrection of all unbelievers. And the Bible says that... um, when you die, it is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. And so you don't want to wait. If you're in flux with the Lord, you want to get that resolved because you never know when your time is up. We all have an appointment with death. That's just the reality of what the Word of God says. And so we looked at those different kinds of reservation, uh, resurrections, and then in verses 20 to 23, we talked about the certainty of our, our resurrections. And remember, it's, it's Paul who's addressing the Corinthian church who believed that Christ rose from the dead, but they were having a hard time understanding that one day they too would rise from the dead. And then last week we saw uh, the conquest of all the enemies, beginning in verse 24. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So it's very clear that there's going to be a conquest by God of all his enemies. One day everything will be set right. Unfortunately, we don't live in that day today. Sometimes it can be frustrating. But we have to be reminded that God is in control and he is sovereign over all these things. And then in verses 27 last week and 28, we saw the climax of all history. The climax of all history. And... uh, Today we begin, like I said, a difficult passage, and so I would ask you to stand in honor of God's word. I just want to read verses 29 to 34, and we're just going to spend time in the first verse there, but I want you to hear it in its context. And so in verse 29, Paul writes, Otherwise, what do you mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us drink, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. 
For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to just this one verse, verse 29, as we just spend a little bit of time here talking about baptism and understanding what it is this morning. And Father, we pray that you would lead us and guide us, edify our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So understanding baptism. Uh, the first verse there in our text says, Otherwise, why do, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? That's the ESV version. Now, it's important to understand a couple of things here. This is a big controversy. <laughs> all right, um, A lot of people take this verse out of context, and they want it to mean something that it does not mean. And so we're going to take a little time this morning to explain to you what baptism is from a Jewish perspective, from a Gentile perspective, and then also what does this mean, being baptized for the dead? Is that possible? What, what could that possibly mean? And so the thing that you have to remember is that he doesn't completely start a different subject here. He's talking about who? He's talking about Christ, his resurrection, and the results of his resurrection. And this is one of the, the results. And so he, he brings up here this conviction about baptism. And so let's start with the meaning of baptism itself there on, on your outline, the meaning of baptism. I think there's a lot of people in our churches today in America that do not have the slightest idea what the Bible teaches about baptism. They're confused. They've never taken the time to understand what it means. A lot of people in our uh, country today have been baptized as a baby, as an infant, and they feel they're good to go. A lot of times when you're witnessing to somebody and they say, are you a Christian? What what do they respond with? Well, I was baptized. (laughs) And you want to say, who cares? Because we know biblically (laughs) baptism has nothing to do with baptism. Getting saved it has no, it's not a, a means of getting saved. It's just a sign that you have been saved. And so there's a lot of confusion over baptism today, and there has been for thousands of years. Um, a lot of times Christians don't really care what it means, but they fight over the method that you baptize someone. A lot of people fight over that. Um, it's interesting you know, we've, those fights have gone on in the church for 2,000 years. Uh, some people say, well, you know, no, you just got to sprinkle a little water on their head. Other people say, well, no, you got you to pour the water over the head. You can't just sprinkle it. That's not good enough. And then there's others that say, no, 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 you got to dunk them in the water. I mean, they got to be wet, 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 completely, head to toe. Um, Some people argue over whether they should be baptized in a church. We have a baptismal up here. Some people will be getting baptized soon here in the coming weeks. And they'll be sharing their testimony. And then they'll be following the Lord in believer's baptism. Some people say, well, you can do it at the church. Other people say, no, 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 it has to be out in public like it was in the New Testament. So you have to do it at the beach or or out in a a river somewhere. Um, Some people argue over, can you be baptized more than once? Uh, there's a lot of different things going on about, about baptism. And, and Christians fight all, over all that. But a lot of Christians, if you ask them, well, what does baptism mean? They'll say, well, what do you mean? <laughs> they, don't, they, don't, they, don't, they don't know the answer. Well, it's interesting because the word baptism, baptizo in the original, in our English translations, in our English translations of the Bible, the word baptism appears 115 times in the New Testament. What's interesting, in the Greek, the original language, it appears 123 times, so about eight times more. And that's because there's different forms of it, there's different nouns, adjectives, or adverbs, and verbs, so forth, of the word baptizo. And what's interesting, the word baptize is not really translated from the Greek. In the Greek, it's baptizo, and in the English, it's baptized. They just carried it right over. And there are some words that they, they do that. But I want to show you a couple things, just introducing this message this morning, about baptism. And first of all, 
and I don't think these are in the outline, so you, you can probably jot them down. First of all, the, the, I want you to have the Jewish understanding of what baptism is and what it meant, because that's important, because some of the people that made up the church in the, the early New Testament were from the Jewish background. So they had a different mindset when it, you mentioned the word baptism than we would as Gentiles. Well, the first thing, the Jewish people are very used to baptisms and washings, um, plural. They, they get baptized several times. And they look at baptism as kind of a, a ceremonial washing before they would go to worship the Lord. They would baptize. They would, they would have a washing, and they called it a baptism. As Christians, what we do is we, we basically, when we speak of baptism, we think of that point in time, right, in our lives where we were baptized. That's what we think of. Um, I was 19 years old. I came to the Lord in April. Uh, March or April, I think it was that, that month. And uh, pastor asked, well, are you going to follow the Lord in believer's baptism? I said, sure, why not? And so we went down to a little creek in uh, Little Sock Creek there in, in Montoursville. And there's still a little snow on the ground. And went into the water and got baptized. And it was cold. <laughs> I mean, he was wearing waders. I wasn't, you know. But uh, you got dunked. And uh, I remember thinking, Wow. You know, what's this going to be like? Am I going to come out of the waters and see the lights in the heaven open up? No. It's, it's just a, a, it's a, for us, it's an outward symbol of an inward change. Okay? It shows us that, you know what, something's different. Something's new. And it's the same way, really, in the, the Jewish mindset. But they view it as many washings. They had many baptisms. They had many Washings. We, we think baptism is purely Christian. It wasn't. Uh, Judaism practices baptism all the time. They have a ceremonial washing. They call it mikvah. And it's common among Jewish people. And it's a symbol of being cleansed before you worship the Lord. So that's the, the Jewish mindset. But the practice of baptizing people in water uh, indicates... Repentance in the New Testament. It indicates faith in the Messiah. Uh, it was brought to new levels, really, among the Jews during whose ministry? Do you remember who, who was first baptizing in the New Testament? It was John who? John the Baptist. Johannan, John. And he certainly knew something about being Jewish. He was. Uh, he was a descendant of the priest, Zechariah, and, and his wife, uh, Elizabeth. And we call him John the Baptist. Doesn't mean he was a Baptist as far as denominationally. Okay. Now, people think that. Oh, if John the Baptist was a Baptist, then I'm going to be a Baptist too. No. <laughs> they didn't have such things back then. Uh, certainly, John the Baptist was Jewish, though. He was Jewish. And so, here is one of... These men, if you turn over to Mark chapter 1, a couple pages there to the left in your Bibles, you'll see what I'm, I'm speaking of. This was an odd character, John the Baptist. This wasn't your normal uh, son of a, a priest, you might say. He was out in the wilderness roaming around. He wore camel's hair, leather thong on his feet, and he was eating locusts and wild honey. Kind of looked like a wild man, a maniac, a mountain man. And all these people were going out to see what this guy is all about. And so the practice of baptizing people in water seems to indicate their repentance and faith in the Messiah. And it was brought to new levels under John the Baptist. Look at what it says there in Mark uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. Now here he's quoting from Isaiah. You'll see some quotation things there, and that's from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. But it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Mark, the Son of God, verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. What was he saying? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. 
So this was relatively new to the ears that were hearing this message. Repentance, what's that? It's not just a purely a ceremonial baptism anymore. It, it kind of stepped up its game to the point of, well, the reason you'd want to be baptized is because you're proclaiming repentance and asking for the forgiveness of your sin. But look at what it says in verse 5. This is interesting. It says, and all, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. That means a lot of people. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed, he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So don't worship me, he's saying. There's one coming. I'm just preparing the way here. He says in verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he makes a designation. There's a baptismal, a baptism of water. Okay, we would call that today believers' baptism, those who come to Christ because we're going to follow the Lord's command, which we'll look at in a second. We want to follow him through the waters of baptism. He laid down that example for us. But also he says, he will, the Lord will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That happens the moment you're saved. Okay, you are baptized. You are immersed into the body of Christ. And it's done through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about what that is as we were back talking about the gifts and all that. It doesn't mean that you're going to start speaking in tongues and all that stuff. That's not what we're talking about. It's not an experiential thing. It's, it's more of a thing that, that God performs in our life. It's not something that we seek after. Uh, it says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, ask to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. It will happen when you come to Christ. So we see here that this, this element of baptism indicates that there's faith and repentance involved. Um, but then also there's a command in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, given by the Lord himself. And the, com- the command to baptize in water the, all those who have, who have believed in, in Jesus as the Messiah. In verse 19, Matthew 28, this is known as the Great Commission that the Lord has given to us. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Then what's it say? Baptizing them. In the name. Notice, it's singular. The name, not the names of God. (laughs) No, the name. The Bible always refers to God's name as singular. Why? Because God is one. Expressed in three persons, but he is one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is that? That's a command to be baptized. This is not an option for those who have followed Christ. This is a command. Um, And so this brought whole new elements and understanding for the Jewish mind to wrap their their minds around. Um, What does this mean to be baptized in the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit? That was nothing they've ever done before. That certainly was new when the church began. And remember, when the church began, some 3,000 people were baptized the first day. 3,000 people. Now, when I read that, and and we'll read that in a second, but when I read that in Acts, turn over there, Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 41, um, you know, my first question was, how could they do that? Baptize 3,000 people in one day? Um... Well, we know the whole day started in the third hour of the day, around 9 o'clock in the morning. And Peter preaches on that day the gospel. And I'm sure that he had more words than what were even expressed in the Bible. I'm sure he he said more than what was recorded. 
And so who knows how long he went. Uh, He could have preached for a very long time. Maybe they skipped lunch or something. I don't know. But they had to get all this done before sundown. They couldn't be baptizing after the day was over. So some people believe, some commentators believe that the only way this could happen is sometimes the Jews would, because we understand history and archaeology and things, they would practice what we call reciprocal baptism. And what reciprocal baptism would be is that the, the, you'd have a line of people, so you had a line of 20 people, where the, the, the apostle would baptize the first person, and then after that person was baptized, he would just baptize the second person, and then it'd go right down the line, like dominoes falling down. Okay, that's called reciprocal baptism. And so that would mean, you know, some, some Christians have a problem with that. Um, so just say you had the 12 apostles baptizing 3,000 people. You wonder, how could they do this? Would they have time to do this? Well, if you sit down with a calculator and you figure it out, you know, it might take you maybe a minute or two to baptize one person if you were in a hurry. You know, if you had, if you, had you know, 100 people here this morning that need to be baptized, I mean, we, we probably wouldn't encourage 10-minute testimonies. Okay, we'd be here till dinner time. All right, so we would, okay, great. You know, boom, next. <laughs> you know, and I've seen that happen that way. You know, that's not always very efficient. I like to hear people's testimonies. I like to give them five, ten minutes to share their testimony sometimes. Uh, ideally about five minutes. And then, um, and then you, they follow the Lord in believer's baptism. But say it took them one or two minutes. They could do all 3,000, all 12 of them in about four and a half hours if they set their mind to it. So it is possible. But a lot of people think, eh, it's probably not feasible. They, they'd be worn out. I mean, that's, you know, all, 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 when you baptize people, they're not always tiny little people, you know. And, and sometimes when you're putting somebody down in the water, that's easy. But then what do you got to do? You got you to bring them back out. Or maybe not, you know. I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's like the guy that woke up in heaven and said, I don't know, the last thing I saw was my head going under the water, and now I'm here, you know. Hey, to be baptized, you know, to be absent from the body, present with the Lord, amen, you know. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful thing. But we read about this, what, what actually happened here in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 41. It says, and Peter said to them, repent, which means to change your mind, change your direction. And this is something that God grants us. Uh, the Bible says that this is, this is, something that the Lord grants us repentance. He gives us that ability to change our mind. We don't just wake up one day and go, you know, I think I'm going to change my mind about Jesus. I think I'm going to become his. No. God has to do a work in you. He, he transforms your heart. He changes your attitude. All that is part of repentance. But he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, this is not teaching that baptism is a method of washing away our sins or forgiving our sins. You know, that, that comes from kind of the Jewish mindset. They looked at baptism as, you know, you're unclean, so you have to go worship the Lord in the temple. So what do you do? You, you take a bath. You, you become clean. And, and they thought a baptism, a washing, a ceremonial washing would do that. All right? Uh, if you're going to be baptized here in our church, we would expect you to be able to profess your faith in Christ. We don't want you to think, okay, if I get baptized, then my sins are forgiven. Then I'll be saved. No. How do we know that can't be? Because it's not by works of righteousness that we're saved by, Right? It's by grace. It's through faith. And so he says here basically that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That happens on the moment that you come to Christ. Your sins are forgiven. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children, for all who far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls, there it is, the effective call of God on some, someone's soul, calls to himself. Verse 40, and with many other words, that's why I said he spoke more than just what we have here, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
Verse 41. So those who received his word, and what? Were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church. Added to the rolls of heaven. So they were, they were baptized. And by the way, the word baptism means to immerse. It means to dip. It was a term that was used by uh, people who used to make shirts and fabric, and they would need to dye the, the, the fabric a certain color. And so if you wanted, you know, if you had a, a, a white piece of wool that you needed red, what would you do? You would mix up a dye berries or whatever that would be red and you would take the piece of white wool and you would what? You would dip it. You would immerse it. You would submerge it in the the red dye. You know, they weren't into tie-dye back then so they wouldn't just do part of it and all that. You know, they were solid colors. And so they would dip the whole thing in there. And that's the word that we use for baptism. And that's why we believe as a church that, and we're not, you know, you, you can't really get crazy about this, but... At the same time, we want to be biblical. And wherever it's used, the word baptism is used when it's referring to water baptism in the Bible, it's always, they went down into the water. There was always water there. They needed substantial water for someone to be baptized. You know, you don't ever find it saying, oh, okay, you want to be baptized? All right, here, bring the little sprinkler over and we'll sprinkle your head. It just is not there. So we want to be biblical when we, when we approach this. But on that day, it says 3,000 souls were added to the church. They, they got saved. They heard the message of Peter. They responded in faith. They had their sins forgiven. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized. Notice it happened pretty much in the same day. Now, this expresses the, the, the idea that, you know what, how important is water baptism for the Christian. I think it's pretty important. It doesn't mean if you're not baptized, you're going to hell. It has nothing to do with your salvation. But see, back then, you have to understand, they were coming from all kinds of backgrounds. Some of these people were coming from pagan backgrounds. Some of these people were coming from uh, Jewish backgrounds. And if they were going to identify with Christ, the way their society looked at it, if, if you're truly a Christian, then you know, you know what? You're going to be a Christ follower, and Christ followers get baptized. And so that's what they would do. And really, it was a step of faith by these believers. Because they didn't live in a free society like we have today. They were really marking themselves out. It's like the guys over in Afghanistan today you see on the news giving interviews. I'm thinking, are these people crazy or what? I'm sure the Taliban's watching the same news broadcast. And you have characters up there saying, yeah, you know, I, I'm an American and I live at such and such street and I can't get to the airport. And, you know, I mean, who do you think they're going to go after? So, you know, it's kind of a step of faith on their part. And, and some of the Afghan people even who aren't Christians, they're out there with, with the Afghan flag protesting in the streets. I mean, they talk about faith. Not in Christ, just in, in their own patriotism or their country or whatever to be willing to do that knowing what these people are capable of when no one's there to protect them. Well, it was the same thing when people would come to Christ. When they would come to Christ, if you were Jewish and you came to Christ, you put your faith in Christ and you professed faith in the Messiah, you would lose your family, you would lose any business you had, you would lose any social standing in, in the society, you couldn't go to the synagogue anymore. I mean, it was, it was a big deal. And, you know, one day, it might come to that here in this country. There might come a day when it's people say, hey, you know what, if you're going to go to church, if you're, going to, if you're going to visit a church, especially that church, guess what? We're coming after you. You've got a decision to make, right? I mean, that's, that's the hard thing. And we, we can't relate to that today in our world. But back then, that's exactly what it was. So baptism always expressed a... Um, it, it was for those who committed faith in Christ. And that, that's the next point here. Baptism required a person's faith and confession of belief in the Messiah. They wouldn't just baptize anybody, okay, um, as far as Christian baptism. They would baptize those who were, who were followers of Christ. 
They were part of the way. They, they were part of the New Testament church. Look over in Acts chapter 8, verses 35 to 38. We'll start in verse 26, but turn over there in Acts. Because it tells us something else here about baptism in Acts chapter 8. Now, we're going to read a story here. Philip, and he's going to meet an Ethiopian eunuch. And this man that he met, basically... Uh, was a Jewish proselyte. He, he came from a Gentile background, and he converted to Judaism. And uh, it says that he was from the Ethiopian eunuch under this, this queen of Ethiopia, um, Candace, and that's more like a... Candace isn't her name. It's, it's more an official of Candace. It's like he's Caesar. Okay? Uh, it's, it's a title, and so look at what it says here, in beginning in verse 26. And this, this gentleman came to Jerusalem to uh, practice one of the Jewish festivals, no doubt, because every Jewish male and proselyte who came to Judaism, who was converted and was 20 years or older, had to go to the three main festivals, religious festivals, that they had in Jerusalem, if they could. And so he had been there, and he's on his way home. And so he has quite an entourage with him. But it says, Now an angel of the Lord, in verse 26, said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from the Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. I like that. No questions. Wait, you want me to do what, God? <laughs> you want me to go where? Out in the middle of the desert? Why? Why do you want me to do this? Tell me why first. See, that's what we do, right? I mean, we're not quick to obey the Lord. The Lord says, hey, you know what? I want you to do this. And we're like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. But he rose and he went. And there he found an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And he was a pretty high up leader there. It says he was in charge of all her treasure. So this is a pretty big deal. Um, it says he had come to worship in Jerusalem. He came to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. The idea that he had a chariot showed how wealthy and what his background was. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So he had a scroll and he's reading some scriptures. Not uncommon for someone who is Jewish or even a proselyte to Jewish. Obviously he had some wealth to have his own scroll there and he's reading it. And the Spirit said to Philip, now remember, this is the now in the t day and age where the Lord spoke directly because the New Testament canon hadn't been completed yet. So he, he kind of had a direct line to some of these apostles and prophets. And he would directly give them revelation. And so that's what he's doing here. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. That is a step of faith. Think about it. He's out in the middle of nowhere. This guy is a kind of a high-value target, you might say. You know, he's a convert. Um, you know, he, he represents a lot of wealth. And all of a sudden, the Lord says, yeah, go over there and join up with them. Uh, and look at Philip's response once again. So Philip ran to him, <laughs> ran right over. He, he didn't have any hesitation whatsoever. Why? Because the Lord told him to do it. He had trust that God was going to provide, that God was going to take care of him. You know, um, I remember my wife and I, we, when we were in Hawaii one time on vacation, we were driving around and she kind of dozed off and she didn't want to go to Hana because of the windy road. And she was, got a little tired and so she was sleeping and I thought, now's my chance. We're going to Hana, you know. Well, halfway there she woke up, which was not good. And uh, she was car sick the whole ride. But... We made it there, and I remember my brother telling me, look, you have a rented car. Uh, if you drive out there, make sure you come back the same way. Don't be tempted to go around the rest of the way on this rocky road um, because if you ever break the car rental or car or whatever, they won't come and get you. You're stranded out there, and there's nothing out there. It's just like an old lava field. It's just black lava. It's, there's not active lava. It's just black and it's hot and arid, and there's nothing there, literally. So we got the Hana, and... Uh, you know, my wife was kind of upset that I took her there. <laughs> and I said, well, I know, you know, I'm looking at the map, and I, 
I think we can just continue right around this end of this. It's not that far, you know. And she's like, okay, if it's straight, why not? You know, she didn't, and I didn't tell her what my brother had told me. So we start off, and we're just in a little sedan of a car. You know, I'm not like in a four-wheeled Jeep or anything. And we're tooling along pretty good, and it was kind of interesting. You know, there wasn't there anything there to see. It was really hot. And, and so we got probably three-quarters of the way. And I remember up out of these rocks, these black rocks that were these lava rocks up near the ocean. You couldn't even really see. I mean, you see the ocean out, but you couldn't see the waves breaking up against the lava because you're just on this dirt road. And uh, it's all lava fields around you. We hear and see these people waving at us and shouting for us to stop. And so I stop. And my wife's like, what are you doing? And I go, well, there's some people that need our help. She's like, are you crazy? We're on the middle of nowhere. There's no way I'm letting you go. And I said, oh, come on. Maybe somebody drive, whatever. I said, what are we going to do? Oh, okay. You know. So reluctantly, I listened to her. And uh, I remember when we got back to my brother's house, you know, I said, hey, it wasn't that bad of a drive. You know, he, was, what you, he chewed me out. You know, what are you nuts? You can't go that way. There's people out there. They, they entice you to stop, and then they rob you. <laughs> I'm like, really? I'm like, oh, thank you, dear. <laughs> you know, for once in my life, I listened to her, and she was right. So, you know, uh, and, and you can imagine Philip running over to these people out from out of nowhere. All right? And he hears this guy reading, it says in verse 30, the prophet Isaiah. And so he, he shouts out to him, hey, <laughs> Mr. Eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? In verse 31, he says, how can I unless someone guides me? The answer is no, I don't. And he invited Philip. So the Lord was working, right? The Lord was working. This is an important evangelistic principle. You can tell when the Lord is working in someone's heart when you share the Lord with them. You know, you don't have to, you know, after they show disdain and are trying to move away from you and back away from you, you don't have to pursue them with the Bible and cram it down their throat. That's what you don't want to do. What do you want to do? You want them to be hungry for the word. It's not that you don't give them the truth, but once the truth is given, you have to discern real quick. Do I have more time with this person or is it over? It may be 30 seconds in an elevator. It may be 10 minutes on a bus ride. It could be, you know, five minutes while you're checking out at the grocery store. But you can discern pretty quickly whether the Lord is working. And, and the reason you can do that is, what, do they ask you a question? Do they, are they inquisitive? And that's what, you know, he says, how can I know unless someone guides me? And then he invited Philip to come up and sit with him, it says. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Rather interesting. God's providence, right? This is not mistaken. God has a reason for this. He says, like a sheep who was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? He's seeking spiritual truth. He wants to know. And then Philip opened up his mouth, and what did he do? He began with the scripture, and it says he told him the good news about Jesus. See, the one thing we should be able to do as a believer is we should be able to pick up anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't matter where it's at. And somehow get people to the Savior. You know, you may have to jump through some hoops to get there, but that's the goal. The goal is to turn the conversation to the Savior. And that's what he does. It says that he began to tell him the good news about Jesus. What's the good news about Jesus? The gospel. The point that, you know what, you're, you're lost in your sin without hope. There's no way that you could ever meet the righteous standard that God holds before us to enter heaven. But the good news is what? The good news is Christ came. He lived a perfect life for 30 some years here on this earth. That he willingly gave up that life. He died. On the third day he rose again. Victorious over sin and death. And when he died on that cross. He paid for all of the sins of all those. Who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ. Now some people say. Well didn't he pay for the sins of the whole world? No. He didn't. Or the whole world would be saved. Sometimes people have a hard time with that. 
You know, he didn't die a general death for everybody, and then it's us for us left up to us to figure it out. He died a very specific death, which should make our salvation even more special. When Christ died on Calvary, he died for Steve Converse. He died for Ken Saragusa. He died for Hillary. He died for, put the name in the, in the, the blank. It wasn't like, well, I'm just going to die for all these people, and then if they figure it out, I guess it's okay. No. Because it was done on the cross. It was finished. That's why he says what? It's finished. My task is complete. I've secured the salvation of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in me. And so, this is the gospel. And when you come and you admit your own sinfulness before a holy God, and you realize real quick that, you know what, there's no way I could save myself. It doesn't matter how many times I come to church, or how many times I pray, or how many times I give to the poor, or feed the hungry, or whatever it might be. Because the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness that we're saved. Lest we what? Lest we boast. That's not how we're going to get to heaven one day. We're going to get to heaven on a carpet of grace. On God's grace, on God's mercy. And that's a very good question to ask someone who says they're a Christian. Are you a good person? Do you believe in that you should be in heaven when you die? And if their answer is, oh yeah, I'm a very good person. You know, they've got a problem. They don't understand the gospel. And so Philip here says, well... Uh, is he talking about the eunuch asked him, are you talking about himself or someone else? And he explained him the good news about Jesus, verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. So they continue along. They're probably just talking. And the eunuch said, hey, look at the water here, Philip. Remember, they're in a desert area, so it was kind of an odd thing to have water there, but God provided. He says, what prevents me from being baptized? And then Philip says, and some of your translations, the ESV included, may not have this verse 37 in there. I personally believe it should be in there. There's nothing, no reason why it shouldn't be. Okay? But, um, and the verse says this, Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And he answered, and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38, And he commands the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. They went down into the water. He didn't grab a, a cup of water and run down to the creek and come down and sprinkle it on his head. He went down into the water. That's what the word baptize means. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So here's this guy. He's on his way home from this festival, new convert to, to Judaism. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. He doesn't understand what it's talking about. He's reading Isaiah 53. And Philip listens to the Lord, luckily, and goes over and does exactly what the Lord tells him to do, preaches the gospel to him. They see some water, and he says, hey, what hinders me from being baptized? Now, I ask myself this question, why did he want to get baptized? No one explained baptism to him. I mean, he hadn't been through a discipleship class in Christianity. He didn't know. Why did he want to get baptized? Well, I'll tell you why. When he was a Gentile proselyte, when he came to Judaism, um, they call it a worshiper. When someone wants to, to worship the true God and they cross over from their, their Gentile beliefs into Judaism, one of the things that they had to do was get circumcised and also be baptized with water. That's what they had to do. And so it was a sign of putting off whatever else you believe. It was a sign of putting on something new. That's kind of what baptism pictures. That's the symbolism that Paul uses in the New Testament. I mean, he speaks about it, putting, putting off the old life, right? And putting on the new and he's, apparently, this proselyte has already done that. He's already made that commitment to, to Judaism. But now there's something more. He, 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 his eyes are open to the gospel. He's reading about the Messiah and Isaiah. And Peter's able to explain the gospel to him. And he says, no, I believe that in this Jesus. And so in his mind, he's just doing what he would do as a Jew. Okay, well, let's do this, this washing thing. Let's, let's make this commitment. 
I want to be baptized to publicly demonstrate my belief in the Messiah. And he says, if you believe with all your heart, um, you can be baptized. And so they baptize him. They went down into the water. So there was a faith there. There was an expression of faith. Peter didn't say to him, oh, okay, um, oh, there's some water. Do you want to get saved? Let me baptize you. Because why? Baptism does not save you. It's just a sign of your salvation. It's an outward sign of an inward heart. Now, some of you at this point are saying, yeah, yeah, I know all this stuff. You're boring me. Well, you're going to miss this whole baptism of the dead if we don't tune into what I'm saying. Now, I want to mention this kindly, but I don't want you to miss this. In the Bible, there is never any record, any mention, ever, of babies being baptized. Ever. It's foreign to Scripture. That's been taught throughout church history. And it's practiced today. But how many of these people know the Lord? Because that's one of the conditions for baptism. You have to know the Lord. I mean, people always say, well, I was baptized as a baby, as if that has something to do with anything. You know, big deal. So what? Most people don't understand the theology behind baptism. So, you know, you have Roman Catholics, you have Episcopal churches, you have the Presbyterians, you have Covenant Reformed people. What are they doing? They're baptizing babies. Some of these individuals who believe in this are very I would say even conservative, theologically-minded people. I don't know where they get it from. Well, I do, but it's not from the Bible. Why do they baptize babies? Well, the reason is, is because they believe baptism for the church, for those who put their faith and trust in Christ, is the same as circumcision for the Jews. That's what they they believe. That's not true, by the way, but that's what they believe. When the mother or father would circumcise their their baby boy on the eighth day of his life, um, that would happen in in a Jewish home. And so theologians today say, well, that's that's a symbolism of baptism. So um, we can still, they baptize, or they circumcise babies, so why can't we baptize babies? Well, they're two different things. The problem with this, it gives people the impression that as they grow up, having been told by their parents who are reading off a little certificate somewhere that they've been baptized as a baby, that somehow they're saved, that somehow salvation has brought them into a certain specific group of people. And that's not true. Um, It's not even true, really, of, of those... Babies who have been circumcised circumcised in the flesh. Because the Bible speaks of what? That's just a symbol, right? That's not going to do anything for you theologically just because you're circumcised outwardly. But what does God say? You have to be circumcised where? In your heart. Okay? Going through the waters of baptism doesn't save you. The baby still has to believe in the Messiah. And ask yourself this question. When's the last time you could have a baby understand the gospel? Most adults have a problem understanding the gospel. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, following Christ. That's difficult stuff. So, just so we're clear, just because you've been baptized as a baby, it does not mean that you're saved. It has nothing to do with it. In fact, if you haven't come to personally believe in the Messiah, if you haven't personally confessed him as your Lord and Savior, then you are definitely not born again. I don't care what you say. You might be a church member, might be a good person. But you know what? You're not a member of the body of Christ. And that's the one that counts, my friend. True believers are those who have come to know the Lord. 
regardless of the brand name. doesn't matter what you call yourself. So we have to kind of get this right. Well, I want to tell us two things about the meaning of baptism here as we move on. And it sets us up for this question of baptism for the dead. Two things when you talk about the meaning of baptism. First of all, it implies salvation has occurred. That's why there's no mention of babies being born or being baptized in the New Testament. The Bible knows nothing about baptizing people who are babies who are, or people who don't know the Lord. And yet, churches are doing this all the time. They're baptizing people. They're not requesting any kind of testimony from them. They're not even requesting anything from them. They get them in the tank and, hey, well, it's great to have you here. Dunk next. And onward they go. And those people are left with the understanding of, well, you know, I guess I'm saved now. I got baptized. Personally, I don't want to ever, ever baptize anybody who hasn't come to know the Lord. I wouldn't want to do that. I want to hear your testimony. And no doubt, even when the 3,000 came to Christ on that one day, I guarantee you that the apostles did their due diligence and asked them, are you a follower of Christ at least? Are you here desiring to follow him through believer's baptism? You know, maybe they didn't give a real long testimony because of time, but they were able to profess with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. Look over at Mark chapter 16, because this kind of points this out to us. Water baptism implies in every case that salvation has already occurred. Mark 16, verses 15 to 16, it says, And he said to them, Go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will what? Be condemned. The idea is you believe, then you get baptized. That's why it's called believer's baptism. Or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who were the people that got baptized in the New Testament? It was those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death, his burial, his resurrection. Those are the people who got baptized. So it illustrates, it implies, excuse me, salvation has occurred. Secondly, it illustrates death and resurrection. When you think of baptism, when you watch someone being baptized, all right, think of this verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 5. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, there's the connection, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, there was obviously some people in, in Rome that had some issues with believing in their own resurrection, just like the Corinthians did. And so Paul had to make this very clear. But it illustrates the death and the resurrection. I mean, think about it. When you, when you baptize somebody, what are you doing? You're taking them, you're putting them in water, you're standing there, and you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death, and you're raised new to life. You're buried, okay, you put them under the water, kind of like they're going back in a casket. You could say they're, they're being clothed in the death of Christ, and then you're raising them to newness of life. Symbolically, that's what it's picturing. Or Colossians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, it says, In him you were also, uh, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's talking about the circumcision of the heart, Colossians two eleven, By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then it says this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so we see here, without a doubt, that baptism illustrates clearly death and resurrection, and it implies that those who are baptized are those who are saved. 
Well, let's look secondly here at the motive for being baptized. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. It says, on behalf of the dead. Hooper in the, in the, in the Greek, it's a preposition here. Um, over 30 interpretations of this verse. I mean, there's, there's many more, but main, main line interpretations of this verse. Um, some people believe that it talks about the, the proxy baptism. That, if you're familiar with the Mormon church, that's what they teach. The Mormon church teaches that, see, this verse proves that someone can die and not be saved. But if someone gets baptized for them in their name, guess what? They're somehow saved. And so what do they do? That's why they're so much into the whole idea of keeping a record of people's names and births and dates and genealogy. Why? Because it's their task to make sure that everybody in the entire world has someone baptized for them. So that one day they could enter heaven. This is what they believe. It's called proxy baptism. And they actively uh, practice this. And they go through genealogies and history records. They claim that everybody who's ever been in the United States, all the way back from the founding of the United States, has been baptized for. That's what they believe. It's kind of insane. And why do they believe that? Because they misinterpret this verse. So look at this phrase, they which are baptized. They which are baptized. It's referring to people who are physically alive and have become believers in Christ. Or we wouldn't be talking about baptism. That's the only people in the New Testament who were baptized were those who had faith in Christ. It was a sign of faith. It refers to people who are physically alive and have become believers in Jesus Christ. It has to refer to people. And then we look at the the preposition here. It says for, or on behalf of. This is that that word that mixes this verse up so much in our English translations. Because we think of it just like it's written. Well, they're getting baptized for these people. But that word could also mean because of, or in behalf of, or in reference to. In the original language. It could also mean that. And so if you change this to a different understanding of just what our English Bible is saying to the original. What if the translation is they which are baptized in behalf of or in reference to or because of the dead. Not for the dead. But because of the dead. Well who are these people called the dead? These are believers who have died, believing in a future bodily resurrection. That's what Paul was trying to point out. See, when you leave this earth and you die, you don't just cease to exist. You have a a personality that will follow you into eternity. You have a makeup that God, God created you. You'll just be in a glorified state. So these are our... The dead here that they're talking, the people called the dead are believers who have died, believing in a future bodily resurrection. And the context of this is we're talking about the resurrection from the dead. Here are people who are believers who have physically died, believing that there's a future resurrection of the dead. That was their, their faith, and they, they died and, 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 and went forth in it. And the point is, is pretty powerful as it relates to future resurrection of the believer, because it fits the context a lot more than simply, you know, just getting somebody getting baptized for other people who were dead. Because what Paul is trying to point out is, if there's no bodily resurrection, if, if believers are not going to be resurrected one day, who cares? about these examples of believers who went before us. How many times have you reached or listened to a sermon from someone who's dead in Christ? 
I mean, every day when I listen to J. Vernon McGee sometimes on the radio, I'm thinking, this guy's dead. He's been dead for many years. He spoke at my graduation, but he's dead. But he's still speaking, right? Um, it's important to realize if there is no resurrection, who cares? That's Paul's point. The point of the verse in this whole section is you really can't miss it because he, he goes all the way back from the very beginning and he says, you know, if this resurrection didn't happen, here's, here's the consequences, here's the consequences, here's the consequences. The point that is being made is, is powerful as it relates to the future resurrection of the believer. What's he saying? He said, why get baptized at all? Why would you do any of this if there's no bodily resurrection? It, it would just be an empty exercise. Who cares about the examples of believers who have gone on and died believing in their future resurrection? If there is no resurrection, it doesn't matter. So what is the, the message of baptism? The message of baptism clearly points It pictures, it points, it gives a symbolism to the reality of the resurrection. That's the whole purpose of it. So Paul says, you know what? What do people mean by being baptized because of the dead? So you're going to come to Christ based on somebody who's dead. But if there's no resurrection, who cares? It cuts it right off at the knees. If people, if dead are not raised at all, if nobody's going to be raised, why are people being baptized based on their testimony, a bunch of dead people? That's kind of what he's saying. It doesn't matter. I'll tell you one thing he cannot be saying. He cannot be saying that you can be baptized for someone who's died without Christ. You can be baptized for them. That the Bible can't be teaching that. Because it says what? It is appointed unto men what? Once to die. And then what? The judgment. The judgment. There's no second chance. There's no do-over. That's why the emphasis of evangelism is so clear. You know, we should preach the gospel with a passion, with a with a with a desire, with a with a urgency to people. Because you don't know when they're gonna Breathe their last breath. And so the, the overall meaning here of Paul writing this is very clear that, you know what? Without the resurrection, not only of Christ, but your own resurrection, personally, baptism means absolutely nothing. It, it's not a picture of anything. Because if there is no resurrection, what would be a picture of? It wouldn't be a picture of anything. Next week, we're going to look at the rest of those verses. But let's close our study this morning in a word of prayer. Father, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would give us clarity in these things. Lord, I know that this is a lot to take on, a lot to understand for many of us. And Lord, it's hard to, to comprehend what your truth says sometimes. But Lord, it's very clear. We know what it doesn't say. We know that it doesn't say that we can be baptized for somebody else who's gone on before us without Christ. Um, that can't be the case. Despite what the, the Mormons say or the Catholic Church says or anybody else. Um, Father, we pray that you would um, help us to live each day in our Christian lives with an urgency, with a passion for Christ that presses us to the full extent of doing what you've commanded us to do, to go into all the world to preach the gospel and baptize people. That we would share the good news about Christ. And Lord, if there's any here today who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that you would do that work in their heart as only you can. That you would call them to yourself. That you would make it very clear to them that they are, are not a Christ follower, despite their religious background. Lord, that they need to drop to their knees and really repent of their sin. And turn to you for forgiveness. And Father, we thank you that you give us that grace to do that. As long as we're still breathing, there's hope. There's opportunity to come to faith in Christ. And for us who have 
express that and, and have acknowledged Christ as our Lord and Savior. Give us the wherewithal to live each day to the fullest, knowing that we are representing you, we're representing your Son, we're representing the Holy Spirit, we're representing your church in this lost and dying world. And I pray that people, when they look at our lives and us, that they would see an element of the love of Christ and the grace and the compassion and the forgiveness that we know to be true in Christ. That they wouldn't see just judgment or condemnation. But Father, they would see hope, love, kindness. Because we know that that's what leads us to repentance. And so Father, we thank you. Pray you bless our time across the way as well. In Jesus' precious name, all God's people said, Amen.